you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 10. And the words will be up here for you as I read. Let's stand to honor God's word in reading today. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again, asking for your power through the Spirit to work in us, to allow us to hear your words and only your words, and to allow us to apply it in your way and only your ways. Speak through me. I am weak, and I pray that you would uh, glorify yourself and edify your church and challenge us this day. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen. You may be seated. In these few verses here, we see a little bit about God and what he's doing in the plan of salvation through Paul the Apostle. We see him expressing some of his heart's desire, and we see him in the midst of an argument that he's making in the middle of this book. I think it would be fair that now that we're back in Romans, I would take a few moments to explain how we got here. But in these four verses, we see what Paul is explaining about the gospel and where he is. He's explaining about his heart's desire. It's a heart's desire that I believe belongs to God and came from him. From the very beginning of this letter to the Romans, this uh, church in Rome made of Gentiles and Jews alike, We see how he expressed himself and said what he was trying to do. If we look back at the beginning of the book of Romans, we know that the main theme of Romans is the righteousness of God. And he expressed that in the very first chapter of Romans when he tells us that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first the Jew and then the Gentile. And we see that Paul is explaining this gospel in this way. He is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, even though he is a Jew. He is called to take the gospel out to the rest of the world, but he himself is a Jew. And so we see that Paul's heart is always the idea of who believes, Jew, Gentile, And he sees that from the very beginning of the gospel. He explains that he was called to be an apostle. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Through whom I have received grace and apostleship to bring to the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of the gospel, he says that it's God's righteousness that he's talking about, that he's writing about, that he's instructing these people of. But he never loses, never loses the idea of Jew and Gentile. He always understands that God is doing something that talks about the ethnicity of the church. 
And from the beginning of the gospel, from the beginning of this writing in this book, he's talking about how the gospel is manifest to different people. I think in reviewing a little bit about Romans, we see that Paul is writing this book that has become one of the centerpieces of doctrine and understanding of the gospel. Uh, As Presbyterian and Reformed people, we love the book of Romans. I've studied it many times, and it's, it's full of truth. Why is that important? Well, as he said at the beginning of chapter 10, because some people have great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So from the beginning of the book, he's starting to tell us what God is doing. What is the right order of things that we might think properly on them? And he tells us at the beginning that it is the gospel that's going out, the righteousness of God revealed. Because at the same time, there's a revelation of God's wrath against all ungodliness. So we see that both his righteousness and his wrath are being revealed from heaven. And Paul wants us to understand clearly what it is that is this gospel of righteousness. What is the righteousness of God? So we see from the beginning of the book that he tells us that everyone is condemned, Jew and Gentile alike, whether under the law or not having the law, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. None of us can measure up to what God expects. So God has a plan, a plan to send his son to be in our stead so that we might, through faith, receive the righteousness of God. And through the rest of the chapters from 1 through 9, he explains how that happens. How in the Old Testament, even though he gave the law, his plan of salvation for the Jewish nation was that they would believe in him. And he shows us Abraham as an example. Abraham believed God and he was reckoned righteous. He believed and then he obeyed. He believed God And then he received the sign afterwards. He loved God and he followed his word. That is important because as a Jew, Paul had come to understand God's righteousness in a very different way. And most of the Jews of his time had not followed God's direction. And he is wrestling with this question right here in chapter 10. And we jump right into the middle of his argument. We jump right in the middle of this time where he is explaining what has happened. He goes through the first other parts of the chapters, explaining how God revealed his righteousness, that we've all fallen, that it's through faith that he wants us to be saved. And he goes on and explains the life in the Spirit, how we can have a new life, be new creatures, through the obedience of the faith, not the obedience to the works of into the law. So here he is explaining something that must have been a, a horrible deal to him. How is it that the chosen people of God from the Old Testament have missed the Messiah, have missed the plan that God had for them if they were chosen? And in chapters 9 through 11, he wrestles with that question. He wrestles with this seemingly unanswerable question. How can God's foreknown and loved people have missed his plan? It is a good question. And it's a question that must be answered because what he is called to do 
is to share the gospel with the non-Jews, you and me. The people that were not called to be a people, the people who were not beloved by God, but now we have been called and are loved. We see that in this chapter, he is in the middle of the argument of what happened to Israel. Why did Israel seemingly fall away, even though they had all the advantages? And right here in chapter 10, we see something really revealing about who Paul was. He starts out by saying that my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. This echoes what he said at the beginning of his argument in chapter 9, where he says, I am in great sorrow in my heart because they have not received Christ. They have not followed Christ's way. And he is dealing with this deep anguish that he has that his own have rejected the plan of God. So here in this chapter, he is talking about his heart's desire. His heart desire for his fellow Jews in the flesh is that they be saved, that they would come to salvation. Now, it is interesting how he just very openly says, this is my heart's desire for them, and this is my prayer for them. He prays for them because that's what his heart desires. No matter how many Gentiles he's led to the Lord, no matter how many people he gets to witness to, and we know that he will soon be standing in front of kings and magistrates, his heart's desire is for his own people that for the most part have rejected this message. Now, this reveals a couple things. Paul is in the middle of explaining the whole idea of being predestined and elected. And he knows that most of his own have rejected this message, and yet his heart's desire is for them to be saved. And his prayer is for them to be saved. Now, in my, in my past, I have often found myself praying in a certain direction and have seen other people pray in the same direction, and I came to believe something very differently. Oftentimes, I would say, God, if it's your will to save so-and-so, will you let me have an opportunity to witness to them? If you want them to be saved, God, if it's your will, will you help me be a witness? Have any of you ever prayed that way? If it's your will that this person be saved. It's interesting that Paul doesn't seem to be praying that way. He's praying, Lord, save them. Where did he get that desire to blanketly say, I want them all to be saved? Well, I think he got it from God's very heart. I think he got it from the example of Jesus on the cross. When he was crucified and suffering and dying and bleeding, his first prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't say, Father, if it's your will, forgive them. He just prayed for them. And whom was forgiven? The ones that were elect, of course. But his prayer was open and inclusive of everybody. This is, I think, the desire that we see in Paul's heart for his fellow Jews, the people of his own flesh. And we see it in him so clearly spelled out. He desires it and he prays it so that they might come to know 
the truth. He testifies in the following verse that they have zeal, that they have passion for God, that they are seeking God but have abandoned knowledge, have not done it according to the way God said he was going to show himself to them. There's a lot of people with a lot of passion in this world, but passion does not make it right. All the amount of passion that you can muster up for a certain belief or a certain way of doing things does not make that the truth or the right way. Have you ever, guys, have you ever heard of Linus the Zealot? You know, the Charlie Brown character, who, with all his heart and with all the enthusiasm and with all his belief, believed in the great pumpkin that was one day going to come out and give great rewards to him who believed in the great pumpkin. And he even had converts. Poor little Sally that stood all night waiting for the great pumpkin to arise. He was zealous. He was an evangelist for his way of thinking. Believe in the great pumpkin and you'll be rewarded. But in the end, the pumpkin doesn't come. And Sally says... I've been robbed. I've been defrauded. I put all my trust and passion and belief in the message of this guy, and it was a false message. No amount of sincerity can cause things to be true. It only causes you to be sincerely wrong, not sincerely right. I wish that it was so simple to say, if you're really passionate about what you believe, it has to be true. No. Paul is saying there's passion, there's zeal in the way the Jews did things, but it was not according to what is real. It was not according to the truth. How does he know that? Because that was him. Paul, the zealot for God's righteousness, the guy who was so fierce in his beliefs that he would even persecute those heretics, the Christians, the ones that had misinterpreted the Old Testament and were talking of a new religion where this guy that died on the cross resurrected. That was a message that he saw was so blasphemous that in his zeal and passion, he persecuted the church relentlessly. Was there ever a more passionate Jew? I don't think so. Paul persecuted the church because in his passion and seal, he was blinded to the truth. No amount of passion, no amount of zeal can cause things to be other than they are, other than the way God says things are. And so we see here that he understands that passion and fervor and zeal do not make things true and real. Only the Word of God does. Only what God says. Abraham believed God, trusted in him, and he was reckoned righteous by faith, not by the works. So Paul had a life of following devotedly to God, doing everything he could to earn his way to righteousness. And in the end, he realized, I was wrong. He was knocked off his horse and blinded by the light 
so that he might really, truly see what was true. It's an amazing thing to see how God works, how God so generously gives what we cannot earn. We see Paul talking about this in these verses where he says their zeal is great but it's not according to knowledge. Everything that is not according to knowledge is not the way that God said. So we see that he goes on to talk about for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. This should not surprise us that when people do not understand God's way, we seek to make our own way. When we don't understand how God expects us to make amends and to make things right, we make our own way. This is something that happened from the very first story of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned, they made fig leaves coverings for themselves. The first man-made religion. You felt shame, they knew something was wrong, and they sought to correct it in their own terms. Fig leaves to cover their shame and hiding behind the trees. But that was not God's way, and it didn't work. And every one of the attempts that humanity has made after that to make our own way, to find righteousness in our own terms, has failed, and will fail. The very next generation, Cain and Abel, offered sacrifices, and one did it with his heart not in the right place, and that offering was rejected. God said, it's this way, and your heart counts. By faith, you have to offer what I've asked. Well, Cain's reaction to it was, if my sacrifice, if my religion, if my way of seeking God is rejected and my brother's is accepted, then I will do violence to him. And he goes on from a bad religion to a violent religion where he takes vengeance on an innocent guy that was just doing what God wanted. And it doesn't stop there. It continues with other forms of trying to establish our own righteousness. A few generations later, we see men coming together to build a tower and a name to themselves so they can reach up to the heavens and create their own stairway to heaven, their own path to righteousness. And God says, no. And he sends confusion and language difference. Paul understands that zeal and desiring to make your way is so natural to us that we do it all the time, just as he had been caught up in that. We see false religions today. And last time I spoke a few weeks ago, I mentioned a young lady who was caught in the cult of the Unification Church. I don't know if you saw the news just about a week and a half ago of this mass wedding that happened where 2,000 men and women were married at once under the direction and guidance of the church for the unification of the races and ethnicities because Reverend Sun Young Moon believed that he was the new Messiah that was going to accomplish what Jesus failed to do, 
unite the world in unity. So he's going to do it according to his own will, marrying people together of different nations and races and ethnicities. A lot of them that were saying their vows that night had met just that same day. And as a show of zeal for their religion, for their understanding of how to reach righteousness and do what's good, they would say their vows and wait 40 more days before they consummated the marriages. It's zeal. It's a lot of devotion, but it's not according to knowledge. It doesn't make sense. And they're trapped in this terrible way. Well, Paul was also trapped in a terrible way, thinking that he could work himself to God by his own righteousness. And as he says in this verse, they did not understand God's righteousness because they were trying to establish their own. And as long as they're trying to establish their own, they can't see the truth of what God's way is. And it's very sad that he, with all the devotion and with all the passion, with all that he did for his way of understanding God, he was going exactly against what God wanted. And we see that he was trying to establish his own righteousness by doing these works in obedience and was failing to do what God wanted. He thought that if he obeyed enough, that he would receive what God wanted and what God promised him. He thought that obedience would lead to the right relationship. Now, Jesus' words were a little different. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. But Paul's way of thinking seems to be the opposite. If you obey me, you will love me. It's a little tweak, but so important that it had left so many of his fellow Jews out. And it's the same thing that happens to us. As long as we're trying to earn it, you can't receive it freely. Did you hear me? While you're trying to earn something, you never have an open hand to receive it freely. Because faith and earning works, the law work by earning things, and faith, what God gives us, is a free gift. And while we are endeavoring and struggling and full of passion, trying to do what's right and trying to obey and trying to earn our way into God's good graces, we are close-handed to receiving freely what someone else has already paid for us. The only way to receive it is to give up on that way of achieving it. You don't earn it. You have to take it. You have to receive it by grace. And here we see something that's really an integral part of this message is that the greatest error that Paul had made in his past was trying to climb that stairs to God, trying to earn his way. And we see that illustrated for us in a story that Jesus told. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, and for probably for many of you, is the prodigal son story. The man who has two sons, and they live very different lives. And yes, I said prodigal sons, because we are usually taught that the prodigal was the younger one that left the home and lived wildly and wasted all the money and wasted his life away. 
and one day found repentance and acceptance back into his family and fellowship with his father through simply believing that his father would take him back through simple faith and repentance. And the older son, the other prodigal, who stayed closed and obeyed all the rules and did everything right to earn his father's love, was so close and yet more distant. He didn't enter the fellowship of the party at the end. His life had no joy, only obedience in trying to earn everything by his own way. And he lost out on the closeness and the fellowship of the party that was going on for his repentant little brother. Did you get that? Being so close physically, being so obedient, being so good, and yet being so distant. You see, obedience without faith doesn't work. You cannot earn your way to God, and you cannot earn relationship through obedience. You love first, you have faith first, and then obedience follows. When we demand obedience, even from our own children, if we haven't won their hearts, we're only causing them to become more rebellious. Because obedience without relationship breeds rebellion. Only people that love want to do what's right. You want to obey because you love. And I think it's the message that Jesus said, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. This is a question that Paul is dealing with here, in part because he knows that his life was ruled by rules, by obedience by accomplishing something great for God, zealously, with a lot of fervor, but without knowledge. And now he has come to see it in a completely different way, in a way that was paid for him, and he must receive it with open hands. Here's the irony. As long as we're holding on to our obedience and our trying and our accomplishment and our passion, our hands like this, and they're incapable of receiving what God has done for us. Until we let go of that, we can't receive his grace and be open. Isn't it so interesting that the simplest way of salvation is what God says? Have faith that someone else completed the work for you, and it's been done, and it's been paid in full. But you know what? It's also the hardest way to God because there's one thing that you must give up in order to receive by faith that someone else paid the price for you. You must give up your pride. How many times have I seen people argue with me, sometimes people in the cults, and they say, you mean I don't have to do anything? Somebody else did it all for me? And I can't add one bit to that that's been done? And you say, that's right. It's all yours. It's free. He paid the price. Just receive it. But there is a resistance in our hearts to that because we want to contribute. After all, we live in the land of merit. 
you earn your way to the top. We can't understand gracefully receiving something that we did not earn ourselves. And so what seems to be the easiest way to receive it, just open your hands and take it because it's a free gift that God gives. Sometimes to the people that are bent on earning it, it's the hardest thing. And there is part of the answer as to why the Jews had not received it because they're still going their own way. Paul concludes these four verses with this last verse that says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is an amazing statement because what he's saying was that in Christ, the law for righteousness, the way of getting righteousness through the law is ended. It's finished. Now, we can misunderstand that statement very easily. And when we think about the freedom that God gives us, it's easy to misunderstand that and say, hey, God did away with the law. In Christ, there's no more law. You're free. You can do whatever you want. Wow, great libertarian message. You're free to do whatever you want. Christ gives you freedom. But I think the proper way of understanding is that Christ completed and accomplished all the law so that we don't have to because we can't. You see the difference? It's a magnificent, great gospel. This is what's so exciting. He's saying the way that you thought it was going to be that you had to earn your way, the way of accomplishing and obeying and keeping the rules, that's ended because one guy accomplished it, the one and only that could. None of us have ever been able to and will never be able to so that we are justified by faith. It's all his grace. But we are also sanctified by faith and we are going to be glorified by faith. It's all through grace. It's not anything we've earned. In the last few weeks, I've been dealing with certain people that are still stuck in that whole idea of earning and doing the righteousness for yourself. And some of us have come to believe, well, God initiates the work. He saves you by faith and grace. And then you add to it your good works. And then you're sanctified through the good works that you do. And you merit those. And you put your merit on top of Jesus' merit. And you get to get to heaven one day. Maybe through purgatory. We're not sure. But one day you'll earn it. And Paul is telling us in this great book that from the foreknowledge and the, and the predestination through the calling, through the justification and the sanctification and the glorification, it's all by God's grace. But let me end with this idea. Lest you think we're saying that there isn't obedience and that the law is done away with. What Paul is saying here is what he said at the beginning of the book, that he was called to be an apostle to preach the obedience of faith. That obedience does follow true faith. That we live according to God's way and his law, that is his law of his character, how it's revealed, because we have believed by faith. So obedience does have a role in the Christian's life. 
It has a role that is secondary, that if we really believe, that if we really have faith, we will obey. If you love me, keep my commandments. But it doesn't flow backwards. It's not keep my commandments and you will grow to love me. Just like Luther said, I kept his commandments and I hated God because it was impossible to keep it all the time. It's what the next verse says. And I don't want to steal anybody's thunder with verse 5. But Paul is saying, if you want to keep the law and think that's your way to God, it has to be 100% perfect all the time. That's impossible. So we rely on God's grace instead and just give him thanks that he sent one guy in all of history to accomplish what we could never accomplish. And when we let go of our own trying and our own striving, even our own trying to perfect ourselves with good works apart from faith, we receive what he has given and what he paid such a high price for. Paul understood that in his great seal, he'd been willing to kill for God. And now his heart's desire is that, that he would exchange places, that he would give up all his benefits if others could be saved. That's a completely different view. That's the view of God, who on the cross said, I will be accursed. I will give up all my rights for saving this wicked people. What an incredible message. And the privilege that we have, as Paul did, to take that to other people so that one day there will be unity between Jew and Gentile, American and Hispanic, black and white, people of all tongues and tribes and nations. How? Through the Spirit. Not by some artificial, contrived, interracial marriage of some false prophet, but by God's Spirit we are united. I finish with this beautiful idea that Paul is saying, here is the way that God said it. It is my heart's desire and my prayer that all Israel would be saved. It should be our heart's desire and our prayer that everyone we know be saved, that we take that invitation to everyone who will be saved, God's elect, but through our open invitation and our heart's desire to reach them all, because that is faith according to knowledge, not against it. And so we see that Christ has become our end. Christ is the completer, the one that accomplished all things by perfect obedience and by perfect sacrifice. And he becomes our final destination. He becomes our end. He becomes who we hope for and who we will end up being like. Christ's likeness in us. I hope that through these words and our meditation, we will have that same heart's desire that Paul did, to reach out to everyone around us that some might be saved. He knew that all wouldn't, but nevertheless, he worked and preached and did all the good works that he was supposed to do that some might be reached. I hope and pray that that is our heart's desire. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the apostles' words that are inspired by your Holy Spirit, that is, your heart's desire, that the Jews and the Gentiles, the people of all ethnicities and races would come together to worship you, the one and only who could accomplish perfect obedience and pay the price for us. And Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent him and his body was broken and his blood was spilled for us so that we too might partake of the fellowship and the communion with you and with each other, the true fellowship of Jew and Gentile and all the nations together at your supper table. Together, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Would y'all stand as we're able to sing? Prepare our hearts, even as the table's being prepared. Prepare our minds. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be a sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Nothing labor of my hands can fulfill thy lost demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and Simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, Fall I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall 
unknown See the old night judgment throne Rock of ages cleft for me Let me hide myself As we come to the Lord's Supper, I always like to remind everyone that this is not Redeemer's table. It's not my table. It's the table of Jesus Christ. He did something amazing when he had his body broken and his blood spilled. He gave us an invitation to a table. Every time we do this in remembrance of him, we remember back about 2,000 years when his body was broken, when his blood was spilled. And so we always look backwards because he did this for us. But we also are here right now. And what we experience in this communion table, it's God's presence with us today, right here, for real. But not only that, the table is a looking forward to the day that we will share the same table with him at the consummation of the ages, at the supper of the lamb and the bride when they are wed. That's when Jesus is going to partake of this again. And the invitation is to each one of us that believes in him. And stands in good standing with him with a clear conscience. Let me read the words of institution found in the book of 1 Corinthians. As Paul was given these, so he shared them. He said, But the following instructions. uh, Let me get to the right place here. For I received from the Lord. What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it and in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. He accompanies this with a warning of not to take the Lord's Supper in vain with a wrong conscience. This is a supper for believers. If you are not a believer, I ask you to restrain from taking it and to think about what it would be like not ever to participate in the communion with God and with each other. It's an invitation that's open to you. When by faith you believe in Christ as your Savior. If your conscience is not right, restrain from taking it. And make amends with God through repentance and asking for forgiveness. Let us pray, and then we will continue with taking the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at this table with these symbols, you reminded the disciples that it was a new covenant based on what had happened in the Old Testament of the Passover, 
the spilling of the blood that covered their sins. Lord, thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for the true Lamb of God had come to be our sacrifice. Lord, thank you that in the bread and in the cup we realize communion with God the Father and communion with one another. For it was in the past and is here today and will be in the future for your glory. We thank you for these elements and ask that you would bless each one of us that partake in them and ask that the ones that don't partake, that they would come to realize who you are, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They may too may come to partake and fully enjoy the party at the end of the world that you have set your table before all of us. In Christ's name, amen.
Chosen prayer. 